FNFS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Competition and Markets Authority to create a new regulator to oversee open banking industry in the UK. Stockholm-based Art Capital raises 165 million euros to help startups grow faster and smarter. And the CEO of Goldman Sachs will DJ Lollapalooza in 2022. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 616 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Brewer and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Sim Ray. How are you doing, Sim? Hey, I'm great, thank you. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. It has been a busy, busy week, I'll be honest with you. And actually, if I'm honest with you, I took a four-day weekend last weekend, so I've been slightly sort of palaying catch-up. So as of exactly what day it is and where I am and what I'm doing, I'm, I'm still not quite sure, if I'm honest with you, but I'm, I'm hoping for settled times next week. You, you had a busy one? Yeah, it's been quite insane, but in a good way. Good things are happening. You've actually been on sort of London soil for a week at least, haven't you, rather than sort of jet-setting around the world? Yeah, definitely. This time just in London. <laughs> wow. I mean, some people would be excited to be in Canary Wharf, but you're there all the time. So, you know, that's a, it's a nice nice thing to do. Anyway, all right. Well, as always, we're joined by some super-duper awesome guests. First up, making a welcome return to the show, we have Alan Ainsworth, who is the head of policy at OBIE. Welcome back to the show, Alan. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, good. For, for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, OBIE is a bit of a mouthful from an acronym, but you guys get some interesting stuff done. Give, give us a bit of an, a reintroduction to, to what you guys do. So we're the Open Banking Implementation Entity. We were set up by the Competition and Markets Authority to essentially design a single standard for the UK implementation of PST2, but also to make sure that the big banks implement that standard really well so that we can then connect a lot of third-party fintech providers to those banks through a standard API. Awesome. And and actually, I mean, we'll get into it when we get into the news in a little bit, so a little bit of foreshadowing, but interesting times and actually the impact that you guys have had and the you know the competition commission that actually has been sort of created off the back of that and everything that's happened it's been a fun time to be in that space hasn't it so uh, but again we'll come to it when we get into the into the news hey eh? um w- welcome uh, and making a, a, a fintech insider debut today we have axel bruzelis founder and coo over at art capital uh welcome to the show i mean you, you told us off air that you're expecting quite an important delivery do you want to kind of uh, give give us uh, the listeners a bit more information about that uh, and also tell us a little bit more about Art Capital. Yeah, so we're due to have a baby pretty much tomorrow. So I am. Um, I do sort of apologize ahead of time for any phone noise or abrupt leaving of the studio. But hopefully, hopefully that will wait a little while longer. So if, if for everybody listening, if if Axel just disappears in the second half of the show, then uh, don't be uh, don't be surprised. It wasn't anything he said or we said, but something more important came up. But uh, for for everybody listening, uh, tell us a little bit more about Art Capital. Thanks. So we're a, we call ourselves a precision finance company. What that really means is we connect to any and all raw data that a fast growing tech company might have. Then we use that to build up a sort of very precise picture of how that company is doing and where it's going. And we use that partly to issue quite long-term loans to those companies. And partly we make that same data and analysis available to the companies themselves so they can perform better. Very, very cool. And we'll get to uh, that a little bit more as we go into the news as well. Um, we probably better get on with it because there's a lot of stuff that's been happening this week. So, uh, Sim, I think we're probably going to be whistling through a lot of these just to, just to make sure we sort of cover it. But uh, let's get into the news, hey? Um, first up, there was a story that was covered in a lot of different places, but we picked it up in UK Tech News, which is CMA to create regulatory body to oversee open banking industry. 
So the UK Competition Regulator has recommended the establishment of a new entity to have regulatory oversight, as they put it, of the open banking industry. The CMA said on Friday that it is yet to be named uh, what the name of that regulatory body will actually be to replace the OBIE. So I guess, you know, Alan, commiserations, I guess you're out of a job, but potentially another great job in this sense in terms of everything that's going on there. So um, the CMA's recommendation is that the future entity is led jointly by the FCA and the PSR and has an independent and accountable leadership to the the purpose of that entity. The latest announcement comes after a group of UK fintechs recently criticised the CMA over uncertainty of the future of open banking. And more broadly, I think the the point that they were making was, you know, let's not throw away the great lead that we've had in terms of all of the work that's been done. So, I mean, Alan, we probably want to come to you first on this one, given you're, you're very much at the coalface on on where we're at with this. And obviously, OBIE, you know, will be dramatically impacted by this, I guess, in terms of this this announcement. But I mean, first, what what's your reaction to this? My, my personal reaction is one of significant positivity. I think everyone at OBIE looks at this and If you go back to what was announced and a couple of things, one is CMA looking at the future of OBIE and the future entity that will at some point replace us. It could be the same legal entity. It could be a new one. And the second thing is the creation of something we're calling the JROC, which because it sounds a bit cool, but it's actually the Joint Regulatory Oversight Committee, which is um, the four authorities, FCA, HM Treasury, uh, PSR and CMA. And they're going to create this JROC which will oversee, from a regulatory perspective, the future of open banking in the UK. So, you know, when we look back a year, we were a bit concerned about what might happen and what the CMA might say. I think what we've now got is all regulators committed to seeing a future for open banking in the UK. And I think that's really positive news, not only for the people at OBIE, but also for a significant number of fintechs that are playing in the open banking ecosystem. Very cool. I love the I love that J Rock thing. Like I'm a I'm a I'm a t-shirt and stickers kind of guy. So like I, I can see the swag kind of coming out of that in it. But yeah, and you do sort of paint slightly like a Lord of the Rings. It's like a, a group of elders sort of coming together to solve these things. It's it, it is an interesting one, isn't it? Obviously open banking, you know, when it was a like you say, it was a guidance for the implementation of, of regulation from a PSD2 perspective. I mean, it, this is almost like now it's growing up and it's grown up in terms of the impact that it's having on the industry. Uh, like who who controls this or who's who's there to really sort of take that mantle on? And I, this isn't really just an open banking thing. You know, it's an open banking story, but I think we can kind of use this a little bit for a jump off of, of regulation much more broadly, I'd say, in the UK. And it, I don't think it's just the the uh, OBIE, I think it's the changes that we've seen in the FCA, the changes that we've seen in the Bank of England. And, and I think this is really the UK kind of coming to terms with the really that we're, we're at a bit of an inflection point in terms of where do we go next? You know, there's an amazing amount of work that has been done. But actually, how do we continue that and continue to create that that leadership position for the UK uh, on a global stage? So, I mean, maybe sort of bringing it back, Alan, to, to OBIE specifically, do you think that then means that you know this uh, this kind of fellowship of the ring concept of pulling everybody together to to that sense? Does that allow the the remit of of this entity then to to really take that onto that next stage in terms of the you know the plethora of opportunities? I hope so. I mean, I think you know it is early days. We've only all read the announcements of last Friday, so we're we're still working through what that would mean not only for us but also for 
the UK open banking ecosystem. But I'm hopeful that it does do just that. So if you look at open banking in the UK, 5 million users at the moment, more than that, in fact. So we've had a good start and we've laid the foundations for a great open banking ecosystem. But of course, it was built on a regulatory premise that's probably six, seven years old now. And if you want open banking to deliver what the market wants in 2022, you need to ensure it works for what the market needs now, right? And that's going to obviously be more than what PSD2 said it needs. So what is that? How do we make account-to-account payments really work? So I think we've near enough correct data in terms of payment account data, but how, how could you and how would you and how should you extend that to other forms of data? And how do you do the same to make open banking payments really work? Potentially as an alternative to cards for retail transactions, which I think is a massive opportunity, but one which we've never had the remit to look at. And I, and I guess, you know, on a global stage now, you know, as I sort of touched on the the work that has happened in the UK, you know, from the CMA, FCA, you know, the OBIE and a bunch of other acronyms, I can't remember, but like all of those things that have, that have gone on, we're now seeing different geos, you know, d- data being opened up, the, the remit of that moving much beyond, as you say, uh, just the payments world. Um, I guess it's the hope that this entity has, as you say, a, a much broader remit to continue the the laying of those foundations from an innovation perspective. Yeah, and we've got to figure some of that out, and so does so do the regulators. I think the first step is to ensure clearly that we do finish what we were set up to do. So we have to finish the roadmap. There's still a couple of things that we need to get implemented. Variable recurring payments, I know, is something that a number of people have spoken about. So we've got to get that implemented and deliver it for sweeping services. And we've got to implement some changes to dashboards as well. So we need to get that done and make sure that, you know, not only do we get that done, but that we make sure we continue to deliver those things that the CMA order asked us to deliver. What we've also got to do is make sure we transition this appropriately across to a new body. Um, and that that's going to take some time to think through. And what a lot of the ecosystem is saying is, well, what happens in the interim stage before you've got a new entity? And, you know, we had a, a steering committee meeting yesterday there was a general agreement that clearly we, we, we need to continue to do certain things between now and the end of the year. Um, and there are things that many of the ecosystem are talking to us about doing. But over time, we will get used to this new world. We'll get used to having the JROC in place. And we will work out how to interact with those regulators and work out what the next step should be. Super, super interesting. I mean, for, for anybody, I mean, there's a lot of people that we've sort of seen uh, out there. You talk about the the sort of sweeps, the variable reoccurring payments pieces. This is something that I think we've seen in the UK, particularly the, uh, the, the um, there's a lot of people who I've seen on a global stage talk about sort of emulating another geos. But from a UK perspective, there's a lot of people get very excited about what that unlocks for, uh, for organizations in order to do it. I mean, at the beginning of this introduction, you sort of said half of the remit is really about ensuring that the big banks adhere to these things and and get there. I mean, that feels like it. That's a, it, it, that tension's quite difficult, I, I guess, from a from an entity perspective. Because on one hand, you're trying to create you know competition and innovation, and on the other hand, you're having to enforce and reinforce the the standards, the, you know, the requirement, that must be quite a difficult piece, particularly within your role, I guess. Yes, I think that's right. Although there are different people doing the supervision piece from doing the policy and standards development. So I don't tend to get involved in the supervision piece. My role and the role of the standards team is to to look at, to start with, it was to look at the roadmap and work out what that really meant. 
what we actually had to deliver to make open banking work successfully in the UK. But I think what's interesting is we won't have that regulatory remit going forward, um, not in the same way as we've had so far. So, so far, we've been able to say, you must implement it in this way by this date because that's under the CMA order. Now we're going to look at a different world in which, you know, there will be banks, there will be TPPs, and they'll have certain demands. And we need to work through with the regulators quite how we balance those two different communities in terms of delivering a new roadmap and a new set of deliverables for the ecosystem and for both sides of that market. So we haven't quite figured out what that looks like and how we're going to do that. But I think, you know, over the next few months, we'll get we'll get greater clarity as to what that process is, what the arrangements will look like, and what indeed the deliverables could and should be uh, to keep open banking moving. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. I mean, uh, Sim, uh, you know, on this one, I, I guess we've got a bit, you know, being based in London, we've got a bit of a vested interest in the, the London ecosystem being, uh, you know, the, the sort of leader of the world type thing. Do you think, and uh, we'll talk about Alan like he's not here for a second, but do you think this is the, the sense that, you know, it's the London scene trying to figure out how it brings out that, you know, that follows up that killer first album. Like, is this how they establish their credibility on a global stage by continuing that that level of innovation? Yeah, I definitely think so. So, you know, the CMA found that it allowed for greater competition in banking. And in the first three months of 2022, UK tech companies raised over six billion and half of those were fintechs. So in its simplest form, open banking, you know, demonstrated a practical solution for how data could be securely shared. And it really built the the groundwork for a whole host of potential third party applications. And that drastically increases, you know, consumers access to, to information about their products and spending habits. So I think in that sense, for sure, because it's empowering customers to access their financial data beyond just current accounts. So I think um, in terms of the British fintech boom going international, I think, why wouldn't it? essentially. I agree. Uh, Axel, I mean, you know, Sweden's no stranger to sort of innovation when it comes to the payment side of things. But I mean, how does the the UK open banking scene compare? I mean, I'm in no means an expert, but what, what comes across to me is there seems to be a lot more sort of coordination and direction in the, in the British open banking scene. I think Sweden is pretty good on a company level. We have a lot of banks who've been early with open banking. We, of course, have a few champion companies in Think and Trustly and, and Klarna, but I think there's no way near the sort of visibility of the direction of sort of, I guess, the Nordic open banking space. I would be remiss if I didn't say, if I lost you with any of those acronyms over the the, the past uh, 10, 15 minutes of, of, of this, then I would highly, re- if only somebody put out like a, a decoding banking series that, you know, I don't know, broke down all of these terms and made it really obvious for people to understand... Uh, go check out the 11FS YouTube channel. Uh, there's an episode titled How Does Banking Regulation Work? Um, and it's an absolute great resource for learning what the hell I was going on about for the last 15 minutes. But uh, thank you very much for coming on, Alan, and uh, telling us a little bit more about that. We'll, we'll keep um, wait with bated breath in terms of um, what the uh, the Fellowship of the Ring goes on to conquer next and uh, and actually what that really sort of looks like. But it's, it's great to see the regulators taking this stuff so seriously because it really does create the the fabric as we say at 11fs that actually everything else is built upon so um it's great to see the the progression of that in a real way 
All right. The next story that we had that was covered in a bunch of different places, but we picked it up over on EU startups was Stockholm-based Art Capital raises 165 million euros to help startups grow faster and smarter. Swedish fintech company Art Capital has announced a massive 165 million in seed funding. That is a big old seed funding right there. Uh, Art Capital offers non-diluted loans of 1 million to 10 million euros to European startups. The company uses AI to analyze potential borrowers based on engagement data combined with the relevant external market data as well. The platform then applies advanced modeling techniques to estimate when a customer will become profitable. This sounds super duper interesting. Like if only we knew somebody who could tell us a little bit more about it. Axel, thank you so much for joining us and and in such a uh, precarious uh, family date as as well. Um, Tell us a little bit more about, um, I mean, the company in a bit more detail than you did on the intro, but actually this concept of how you're using artificial intelligence, well, I think that sounds uh, very interesting. Right. So I think the company essentially, came, we're, we're quite a young company. We were founded in sort of mid of last year. And I think we came around along two sets of ideas. So first of all, that the sort of traditional banking system and other lenders couldn't really price risk for for tech companies and understand this dynamic with you know, prioritizing growth over profitability, having very light balance sheets and whatnot. And the second part of that is once you get that and you start trying to land on sort of future potential instead, it's quite hard. There's a lot of players who are good at doing that for six months or or a year, but it's quite hard to sort of credibly understand a company's forecasts for, for longer term. At the same time, these companies are swimming in high quality data that no one was really looking deep at. So we came together, a bunch of us with experience of startup lending, and then some of the sort of best people at using data for predictive analysis. Analysis, that's a hard word for a suite. Uh, So that's sort of the foundation of ARC. So really, I mean, when you look at some of the best tech companies in the world, be that in sort of video games or some of the good SaaS platforms, they have whole data science teams that build up sort of for them quite standard frameworks, but that give a lot of predictability. We try to take some of that framework, pair it with lending, and then of course build on that and add our own analysis. Fantastic. I mean, it's, again, layering on those things to be able to, again, data, it's there to make better decisions, isn't it? But what sort of startups are are using the product so far? So initially, we thought it would be very heavy on B2B SaaS, given that that's where you have this sort of clear dynamic about future profitability, sort of predictable income. But the the thing is, once once you connect to all these data sources, a lot of businesses become predictable. So we have connected users across sort of subscription e-commerce, sort of one-time download apps, um, B2B, B2C, SaaS, basically sort of any tech company that's sort of outside the regular banking system. That's exciting. In my total need always to break it down to something that people can understand, this is like the aging app, but for fintech startups, right? You can basically predict what their future is going to be like by the data from their business, which is amazing, isn't it? Like that's a, the, the, the sort of understanding what those levers would be in terms of being able to kind of understand what you can do to drive the better outcomes at that stage. But uh, I mean, what, what are you going to be doing with the money? I mean, there's always a sort of a deep sigh whenever I ask that question uh, from, from startups and go, well, talent's hard and it's expensive. But beyond that, I guess, what, what are you looking to do from an expansion perspective? Yeah, no, so, so for us, it's really two tracks. 
So first of all, we are trying to build up a really cutting edge data science team. So we're, we're 20 people already. We're going to double that during 2022, which of course is, is expensive with talent. But then the vast majority of the money is really to be fed back into the tech ecosystem in terms of non-dilutive loans. Um, so quite a big chunk of what we're raising is in debt. And then we need to hold some equity against that debt. And then we're we're investing more equity into talent and products. Talent, I mean, it, everybody's sort of view, and we, I guess in every geo that we're sort of talking to people about it, it appears to be the the biggest piece. And actually, if you're talking about data scientists as well, you're going to be going up against some pretty big heavy hitters there in terms of the uh, you know the ecosystem in in every geo at that stage. So, uh, what, what's the what's the secret then in terms of attracting? I don't want you to give away your corporate secrets or your pin code here, but what's the what's the secret approach that you're going to approach for that to to really bring in those talented people? Yeah. So to be honest, we've set the bar sort of even higher, made things more difficult for ourselves in stating that we want to be at least 40% of each gender in each team. So if it's if it's hard to find uh, sort of developers in general, it, it's even harder to find tech talent with, with diverse backgrounds. It's been about for us to really pace ourselves until we find the right uh, the right talent, but then investing sort of everything we have in real estate. This is sort of the on the critical path for us. Definitely. That is a that is a hard task. It really is. And, and across those those areas as well, uh, you know, keeping that bar up from a cultural and, and everything as you scale that dramatically is 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 always a really interesting challenge as well. I mean, Sim, what do you think on this one? This is a, a super interest I mean, big raise in that sense, but a super really interesting product configuration here as well. Yeah, definitely. I think the the size of the raise does provide some sort of testament to to what's being offered. It has to because you know investors are seeing the potential of it. Um, so I think it's a good sign. Yeah, and we covered on this a little bit earlier on when we were talking about you know the the sort of clanas of the world that have sort of come out of of Sweden. But it does seem to me like there's a a, a pretty hot bed there of uh, of talented people and and no shortage of people who are looking at investing in uh, in Swedish fintech, which is uh, which is pretty amazing. I mean, Alan, like uh, always, as an alternative, like if you if you don't fancy London ecosystem anymore, there's a lot of different geographies to to go and play in, hey? Absolutely, and we keep getting different people from different countries wanting to talk to us about open banking in the UK. Um, you know, obviously, it's a very similar regulatory framework to the EU, but, you know, lots of people are looking at the UK implementation in particular and saying, well, what can we learn from that as we develop our own open banking framework, whether it's Canada or South America or or the Middle East, there's lots of different geographies looking at this and very interested in what we're doing. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, Axel, I, I guess, um, you know, other than uh, the imminent delivery of your uh, your your uh, newborn coming in, then uh, there'll be lots of uh, expansions of the product roadmap and everything that goes with this raise as well. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so right now it's, we're sort of doing data-enabled lending. So we connect customers to to our data platform we make that available to them and we use that to drive our our lending. But it's still quite a bit of a manual process. I think what we're essentially doing is we're setting ourselves the sort of toughest analytical target available, which is doing a sort of seven-year loan to unprofitable companies with no equity kicker. And we use that sort of very challenging target to have to develop our AI to sort of replace and improve what humans are doing. So I think across that roadmap, it's partly about, yeah, b- basically making the, the data models better. But it's also, as this 
analytics platform gets better. We're seeing that already with customers that approached us to get loans. For some reason, it wasn't a good fit, but they still want to retain sort of usage over the analytics platform. So we're seeing that become a sort of force in its own right. So I think that that's an interesting roadmap. And then also, of course, doing sort of other durations and being able to do more automatic products as well. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the raise. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you guys do with the money. It's going to be super impressive to see where you guys get to. All right, guys, uh, we're going to have to take a little bit of a break. Hear from our sponsors. We'll be back with you very shortly. Did you know 40% of Australian fintechs are leaders on the global stage? Whether it's simplifying global banking, buy now, pay later, or smart tech for insurance providers, many brilliant ideas developed in Australia are winning in foreign markets. Isn't it time you got involved? Learn how Australian fintechs can power your business today. Visit shinewithaustralia.gov.au forward slash fintech. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome back, and let's get on with the next story. Okay, this is one that we picked up covered over on AltFi, which was JP Morgan Chase launches UK Saver with market-leading interest rate. JP Morgan Chase brand has launched its first ever savings account in the UK with a market-leading 1.5% interest rate. 1.5% just doesn't seem still doesn't seem like a lot in my head when you start thinking about like I mean, Sim, you're you're uh, you're from a completely different generation than I am, but like I remember when interest rates used to be half decent. Alan, you must be able to remember when interest rates were like six percent. You know what I mean? Like I'm not like it's crazy, isn't it? That we're getting excited about one point. I can remember when they were over ten. But isn't it crazy? We're getting excited about one point five percent interest rate. Anyway, we'll come back to it in a second. Um, so the, the UK banking giant launched its uh, digital banking chase. Uh, brand Chase in the UK last year in an attempt to take on the likes of Monzo and Starling Bank. At launch, it offered customers a free banking uh, account with a range of simple rewarding features to help people budget, manage, spend, and set aside money. The app-based savings account is available to new and existing Chase current account holders. Savers can deposit up to £250,000 and can access the funds as often as they like without fees, charges, or the loss of any interest. Uh, by comparison, and uh, you know, mercilessly sort of mocking the 1.5% at the top of this, but it is market leading. You know, the, the competition, Aldemore are doing 0.95% at the moment, uh, Atom, 0.9. Uh, Synergy Bank, 0.9. Shawbrook, 0.89. So, you know, this is 50% more than other organizations are offering in the market right now. To find a little bit more about this, we reached out to Sean Port, Managing Director of Savings and Investments for, for Chase in the UK, and asked, why now? What's the master plan behind this? Let's hear from him now. Well, there was a range of factors that we looked at in coming to the decision to launch the Chase Saver account now at the end of March. Firstly, if you look at what's happened during the, the COVID pandemic, households have actually accumulated a large amount in deposits, uh, in liquid assets, such as you know, holding cash, savings deposits, 
in just money sloshing around in the current account. So by my reckoning, households have accumulated an excess of 187 billion of these liquid assets compared to what they probably would have saved before based on pre-COVID trends. Now, of course, that's an aggregate and that will be very different across different income groups. But in general, households have more money to save. Secondly, if you look at the rate curve, um, there's been a very dramatic shift in expectations for where interest rates are going here in the UK and globally, actually. So if you rewind to a year ago, money markets were predicting that, as of now, the bank rate would still be at 0.1% or actually maybe even less. But as you know, the bank rate now is 0.75 and and the markets have the bank rate uh, expected to rise to 2% by the end of the year and even higher in 2023. So the rate environment has changed uh, really quite dramatically. So that's more of the external factors. But when it comes to the internal factors, based on what our customers are telling us, a savings account is the second most requested feature. So we've kept it super simple based on the research that we've conducted uh, for our customers and also prospective customers. Mm, it's super interesting. I mean, Sim, what do you reckon on this one? I mean, it's a £250,000 seems like quite a lot of savings to me. And, and that doesn't say to me that Chase are going after the same type of demographic that Starling and Monzo are going after. Because, you know, if you're, you're sort of aiming the more... Uh, sort of transient millennial, then I'm not convinced they're going to have £250,000 just to like slop into a, a savings account. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's really generous, to be honest, £250,000. And although it is generous, I think they are limiting some customers. You know, you still have to have smartphone-only access and there's no joint accounts yet. So on that front, they're still limiting some people. But I do expect it to be swamped with applications. Like you said, it's a market-leading rate of 1.5%. I think I read it was the best deal on the market in two and a half years. So they're clearly outpacing, you know, high street competitors. And very few providers have passed on the recent Bank of England interest rate rise to savers. And, you know, the cost of living is increasing. When you combine that with energy prices and the cost of commodities, I think it's going to be a popular choice for those that are going to try and not only increase their savings, but have access to them um, instantly. So it might, it might start an interest rate war. It's always an interesting piece on this. If you attract customers because of rates, do you lose them immediately when they change? I mean, Alan, it's something that we've seen a lot in the market. Obviously, Marcus came into the market and you know uh, was able to sort of acquire a huge amount of uh, deposits by sort of going after that type of market. But it's something we've seen in credit cards and every other sort of side of things as well. Uh, I mean, how do you think this will fare and, and chase more broadly, actually, as, a, as an American brand kind of landing in these shores? Uh, how do you see that really sort of playing out in the long term? Well, obviously, they came in with their current account quite recently. Um, and their challenge will always be, as with any new current account provider, to get not just the opening of the account, but use of the account. So I can certainly see where they're coming in with savings to try to get more of somebody's wallet rather than just that transactional account. So I get the, the move they're making. It'll be quite interesting to see how the how the rate develops, whether it's always market leading or whether this is a big push they're making at the moment. But there clearly is a market for somebody to lead. As you mentioned, with interest rate, Bank of England rates going up and the market not following, you can see there may be scope for someone to take a leadership role. It will be interesting to see what the competitors do in response to this. Um, But yeah, let's see what happens. I'm really encouraged by it. I mean, as we sort of touched on a little bit earlier on in terms of the, you know, the aim from from a regulatory perspective to create competition, then, you know, customers actually having some bloody choices over 1% is a, is a good, good, good start, isn't it? You know? Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, Axel, what do you what do you think on this one? Do you think it's uh, it is a, a good sign that we're seeing more and more people come to these shores? I guess uh, from a, a UK and and potentially the roadmap for for Chase uh, is a lot broader than than actually just the the UK market. Uh, you know, competition is always a great thing, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's interesting from two perspectives. I mean, typically we see the US banks coming in sort of top of of the cycle, right? So that would have been sort of probably 2020 or 21. So it's interesting in that sense. But then as someone who's worked in retail banking when interest rates were higher, I think it's also probably sort of a a peak at what's to come once interest rates get, sort of, if interest rates would go to say 5 6% again, I mean, that used to be the money spinner for retail banks, right? The lazy customer who, who wasn't after interest rates. So it could also be seen as a sort of cautious play and, and positioning for that. I mean, honestly, a, a lot of the fintech business models that we see now are based on interest rates being very low, sort of unitranche mortgage lending, for instance. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. As I sort of touched on a little bit earlier on, whether they retain these balances or retain these customers uh, will be an interesting one to see. I know from experience through working in credit cards and mortgages and different different industry, uh, different slices of financial services, you you do see a, a real deluge of customers kind of move away when those things change or when somebody goes above you from a rates perspective. So uh, time will tell. I think it's good to see though, you know, this is... Uh, Chase of uh, and JP Morgan of uh, more broadly in terms of the parent company, they've had a couple of cracks at this sort of internal challenger approach before, obviously with what they did with Finn over in the US, which didn't quite work out. But it just shows that they're backing this, not just with, you know, a bit of marketing and uh, spend and, and, and whatnot, but more fundamentally with, you know, real capital in order to make these things happen. And I think in terms of the market, it's showing that they've got a, a good understanding of actually what it's going to take to be successful here. This doesn't feel like it's just, hey, let's take something from the US and replicate it here. It's, you know, people who are really understanding the market, which is good to see. So, you know, time will tell in terms of whether they're successful and uh, let's uh, let's watch and see. But um, at the moment, then uh, I can see a lot of our listeners probably moving towards them to actually get some savings at that stage. All right. Let us move on, though. Uh, there was another story that we picked up on tech.eu, which is Cadmos snaps up 8.3 million to transform salary payments for migrant workers. Berlin-based fintech company Cadmos has raised 8.3 million euros in funding round led by Edition alongside existing investor Atlantic Labs. Uh, founded in 2021 by Justus Schumuser, uh, the startup aims to bring fintech into industries riddled with opaque markups, kickbacks, and physical cash. Uh, it offers companies a low-cost and secure method for international salary transfers, while every migrant worker receives a digital wallet, as well as a connected debit card to to remit or directly spend that money. With a focus on blue-collar migrant workers and an initial foothold in the shipping industry, the startup plans to move into verticals with similar salary payment structures, such as construction, healthcare, and hospitality. Um, super interesting. I mean, we've seen a same. We've seen a, a, a various number of of startups kind of aim at. Uh, migrants um, over the years, obviously monies probably most famously within the in the UK market. But I mean, it, the sort of view that we always take on underserved, overcharged, overwhelmed. There is a huge swathe of people who were completely underserved still in the market, isn't there? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think 
it is a bit of a hint that the current system is broken when it comes to integrating migrants into financial services. I think more needs to be done to ensure the full financial inclusion of such people in their new countries. You know, we have scalable, efficient solutions that are still quite in their infancy. And so I think there needs to be both more innovation, but also wider engagement with the problem. We need not only more startups innovating in this space, but also people that, you know, investors that support those companies. And we need larger institutions and regulators to kind of integrate with these products. So I feel like everyone needs to get involved, you know, even like local and central banks need to get involved. But I think, yes, there is a focus on the unbanked, but what about the banked? You know, in some cases, they are the families of the unbanked and they need a platform to make a payment. So we kind of need one bank that caters to everyone. So I think Connectivity is important. And if we're all not connected, it's going to be really hard to build a financially inclusive platform. Yeah, I guess um, traditionally, I mean, the the sort of, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say migrant problem, but the migrant, I'm not sure of a better way to to, to describe it at this stage, but the, the problem with migrants from a big bank perspective is their inability to really do KYC properly or in order to actually monetize it. And this is, I think, why uh, from a a big banking organizational perspective, everything that's below mass market just gets really difficult for them. And it's predominantly because of processes and operating cost. Um, You know, we've sort of seen in the UK market, particularly if it costs you, you know, 180 or 200 quid to run a current account, it's really difficult for you to to figure out how you you can do it in anything other than just that sounds like CSR, essentially, in terms of the things that you kind of need to do. So... I think it's really interesting with players like Moneys, with you know other fintechs coming into the market, with a completely blank slate when it comes to from from a technology day perspective, they actually can start to make this a business model that really stands up to to the test of time. And it's it's not just these guys. There's a a bunch of other people who are are, are really trying to address this market. And and again, not just because it is a great thing to do, but actually building sustainable businesses that wrap around it as well. Alan, what what do you think? I mean, this isn't just a um, a really. This isn't just a, a story from about serving migrants. It's about, as Sim said, I mean, there's a lot of people who are included in banking, but actually, maybe the banking system is not really offering anything other than self service. Yeah, I agree. It's an interesting story, and and I'm struggling to know whether it's a good story or a bad story. And I, I guess kind of looking at it in a binary binary way like that isn't the right approach, but. You know, why should we not provide full fat bank accounts to whoever wants one? But the next thing is, at least this is better than not having a service at all and giving people access to a financial system they might otherwise be excluded from. So interesting to see how this lands. Um, I mean, I'm always worried about sort of e-money wallet that has lots of fees involved in it as a solution to financial exclusion. Um but, you know, this is not an easy one to solve. And if the market can come in with innovative ideas like this and help to solve the issue, it can only be a good thing, I guess, in the longer term. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, those types of schemes are often open to abuse, aren't they, in terms of the way in which that will set. And obviously, as you say, the the rates and charges that are sort of fitted around it. But, but I think we're increasingly seeing organizations that are, you know, that sort of proverbial do good and do good setup. It, it does feel like it is... You know, we are at that crossroads where both of those things are actually potentially possible. But Axel, any thoughts on this one? I think it's a really interesting sector without knowing the company in, in particular. I think it's it's one of those cases where sort of 
fundamentally sound KYC and AML regulation and schemes at big banks sometimes sort of trip up certain minorities in that if you're to sort of adapt a big bank's KYC policy to, to be comfortable with other sort of customer types, it becomes quite expensive and, and risky, whereas a startup that tailors a whole sort of process from scratch can probably be sort of comfortable with and reduce those risks in, in a better way. Yeah. I mean, I guess in a, you know, complex and chaotic world and the market shifting quite dramatically, I mean, I uh, I, I got lots of sort of frowns at me a couple of weeks ago to get car finance because I'd only lived in my new house for six weeks, you know, and it was like I basically didn't exist, you know. So, so the idea of actually being able to rethink how a lot of those processes work in terms of for, for much more... Um, you know, transient addresses or limited credit history or, you know, how how do those things work? I mean, again, Alan, you know, we keep sort of touching on some of the 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 things that, you know, OBIE have, have, have definitely sort of considered in terms of that sort of international view of actually how those data those data points are kind of unlocked. But but it's things like this that actually could really benefit from, you know, not only local standards, but some of those standards really being connected together into a, an international ecosystem. Totally agree with that. And I think one of the, I mean, we've talked about KYC and AML and the difficulty of getting all the data you need to do the right checks. And of course, if you can provide better access to data through standardized interfaces like open banking does, that must make that sort of exercise a little bit easier. And if you can overlay I hate to use this term, I'm going to set off a big load of load of noise around this, but if you can overlay that with something around digital identity to help that process be a lot less clunky, it might make it easier for certain currently excluded groups to access mainstream banking and mainstream services. Definitely agree. And from a Swedish perspective, I can totally agree. Like doing doing due diligence for some British investors, we're, we're quite surprised when asked for our gas or, or phone bill and not for our sort of digital customer verification or digital identity verification. I always uh, I always look to the uh, the wisdom of uh, Mr. Dave Birch on that one, which is uh, it's an insane uh, world that we live in, where the most easily uh, doctored or documented document that we ask for is is a bill that is easily photoshopped. Like, isn't that? just insane uh but on that point we uh, we probably should uh, leave it and actually uh, knowing what's coming next i know it won't be the last time we'll be talking about dave birch as well on the show so uh all right uh we're going to go into the the stories that we just don't quite have enough time to cover in absolute detail but we wanted to give them a, a little bit of a shout out because they are important in terms of everything that's happening um sim do you want to kind of pick up the first one of these for us Yes, of course. So the Bank of England has teamed up with MIT on a 12-month research project on central bank digital currencies. So the bank said it will partner with the MIT team to explore potential technical challenges, opportunities and risks involved in designing a CBD system. And the collaboration forms part of the the bank's wider research and exploration into CBDCs as they join the Bank of Canada and the Fed Reserve Bank of Boston. This is interesting because the focus is on exploratory technology research. So it's not intended to develop an operational CBDC. So saying that, no decision has been made on whether to introduce... Sorry, I'm going to say that again. No decision has been made on whether to introduce a CBD system in the UK, which, you know, would be a huge project. So it'll be good to see where this goes, because this kind of technical research will probably help inform, you know, wider policy thinking around CBDC. 
And for more debate about the future of CBDCs, keep an eye out for our live onstage debate at New York Fintech Week in April, which will be coming soon to your podcast feed. Very, very cool. I'm going to be out there for that one, which is um, which is really good. I'm really looking forward to being out there for that one. Really not looking forward to traveling on a bank holiday Monday uh, in the UK, but uh, but it'll be fun when we're out there. Anyway, next up was a story that was over on Alfi, which is Chip raises $6.5 million in crowdfund uh, on paths to becoming savings and investment super app. Savings and investing app Chip raised $6.5 million from over 9,000 investors this week in its latest crowdfunding round, taking the next step on its journey to becoming a super app. The, the Crowdcube raised on March 16th to B shareholders with a company raising 1 million in just eight minutes, which is insane. Uh, it then opened to the rest of its investing community, one of the largest in European fintech history, and closed just 11 days later. The round marks the first time the company has held uh, an additional spring raise, having opted to go to their investors just once a year around September since 2018. I mean, this is really great to see. I, I know uh, Simon Rabin, the the, the founder of uh, uh, of Chip, has has been on the show a number of times before and sort of charted the the growth every time he's come on. And it's amazing to see a, a company that's doing so well. But actually, I, I always like to see their investors or their customers being their investors. Uh, it really feels like they're really getting behind the purpose of that organization, doing well for, for them as customers. But I can't imagine that their investments are going to do too badly as well, given the, the trajectory of that business. Over to you, Sim. Yep. So from the FinTech Times, the use of mobile wallets is projected to encompass half of all transactions by 2024, according to new insight from Merchant Machine. The report finds that the number of digital wallet users increased by over 50% from 1.4 billion to 2.3 billion between 2019 and 2020. And that figure is expected to steadily grow this year. So China had the the biggest adoption of mobile payments and the Nordics also made it into the top 10. So this is cool because I think innovation in the digital wallet space is being driven by customer demand for, you know, automation, convenience and customization because customers increasingly want to manage all of their financial matters in one place. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated that need for contactless money management and ID solutions. So, you know, that's really behind the growing adoption of these mobile solutions and wallets. So it'll be good to see how far this goes. All right, guys. Uh, well, let's bring everybody back in at that point for quite an interesting sort of final uh, final story here. The CEO of Goldman Sachs is set to DJ at Lollapalooza 2022. This was a story that was covered over in uh, NME, and then a bunch of fintech and banking places felt it was quite interesting as well. Uh, Daly Solomon, the CEO of investment bank Goldman Sachs, is set to DJ at this year's Lollapalooza festival in Chicago. The 60-year-old investment banker and boss of the Wall Street-based financial investment company Goldman Sachs has allegedly been DJing for some seven or eight years. Solomon, who has uh, been Goldman Sachs CEO since 2018, uh, DJs at private parties, charity events. I, I feel like uh, I'm saying he's, he does bar mitzvahs, he does weddings, he does all the... He, I don't think he does those things. I think this is a hobby that's really sort of got out of hand. Um, the lineup for this year's Lollapalooza will take place in Chicago's Grant Park, where he'll be joined at, and on the same billing as Dua Lipa, Metallica and Green Day. I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? I know a lot of people are giving him shit for this online, but... Who wouldn't want to do that? Like, share a stage with Green Day and Metallica. Like, that's pretty damn cool. Um, first, guys, what do you think about this one? Is this a, is this a, um, a hobby that's gone crazy? Or or do you think this is nice? It's nice he's got a 
a different hobby, you know what I mean? Like something to do. What, what do you think, Alan? Have you uh, you got any aspirations of becoming a superstar DJ? I haven't, but I think it's brilliant. I think people who manage to combine a big career, big corporate career with a with a hobby at this level, I think, you know, all credit to him. I wish I could do my hobby to that extent. And you did, you did say to us, you know, what is our hobby? So I noticed in the write-up that you like Spandau Ballet. I don't know if that's known by everybody, but I'd quite like to be the lead singer in a tribute band for Spandau Ballet. I think, you know, Tony Hadley, forget it. Nice. I mean, it's rocking some amazing outfits in the 80s as well, weren't they? So like, I kind of feel all the flowingness, that would be be nice. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sim, what do you reckon on this one? Is this a... would he, do you reckon, I mean, he wouldn't have got that that billing, would he, if he wasn't the CEO of Goldman Sachs? Yeah, I agree. I don't think he would have. But I think it's cool nonetheless. Like, why not? If that's what he likes to do and that's his passion, he's clearly good at it. I think it just adds to the fun factor. Yeah. Do you know what? I did see him actually, I mean, he popped up. I'm a little bit behind on the last season of Billions, but he actually popped up as a an extra on Billions as well. So, like... Well, fair play to him. Like David Solomon, like living the best life that you possibly can, like TV appearances, DJing things, you know, all sorts of good stuff. But uh, we did actually manage to reach out on social media and ask people actually what would be the playlist for this, you know, because every good DJ has a great set list. And as you say, Alan, like mine were obviously with the Goldman Sachs reference, I went for Spandau Ballet Gold. Um, But there was some really interesting sort of suggestions here. So we had uh, Kendrick Lamar, Money Trees, that kind of makes sense, money references. Uh, We had Stephen Miller Band, Take the Money and Run, Uh, Pink Floyd, Money. Uh, I said I'd mention Dave Dave Birch again. Dave Birch actually set out an entire playlist in terms of actually that there was about 15 different songs that he recommended this morning. So clearly Dave had way too much time on his hands on a on a Thursday morning in London, clearly. But uh, bizarrely, I actually, I've got a lot of respect for him doing this. Like, because um, when you're the CEO of anything, it is all in consuming. And actually finding something that takes such focus that you don't think about the day job is great. So, uh, you know, whether it's DJing or, you know, whether, Alan, if you live that dream and get your uh, Spandau Bally, uh, you know, uh, offset going uh, at the weekend, then whatever it takes just to take your mind off the job, I think is a good thing to do. And on that note, we probably want to wrap up the show, I, I, I guess. I think probably this one we could go into like all the weird and wonderful things of what people get up to the weekend and uh, and what uh, what hobbies are where and where people are doing what. But we probably want to wrap it up, I guess. Um, thank you so much to the guests for joining us. Sim, where can people learn a little bit more about what you're up to uh, and where you are in the world? <laughs> you can find me at Nick Canary Wharf and on LinkedIn, but also at sim.rye at 11fs.com. There we go. Alan, how about you? Best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Just find me, Alan Ainsworth. You'll find me there. Very cool. Axel. And I would go for Axel Brusellis at LinkedIn or Twitter. Yeah, or imminently in a hospital looking nervous, I imagine. Good luck with everything, Axel. You've got, definitely got the uh, the most important thing over the next couple of days. And just to think, everybody, when you pick this up on Monday and listen to it, Axel's probably had a little baby. Like, Isn't that amazing? Like, uh, I, I often find it amazing, and it's a, an interesting simile that I take to, to, to many of the banks. As humans, we can reproduce and produce a brand new version of us in nine months. Like, why can projects take 10 years like come on guys we really need to kind of pick our game up so as for me you can find me not lurking in a hallway of a a hospital but uh, predominantly on LinkedIn these days Um, but thank you so much for listening guys I hope you enjoyed the conversation but if you want to join it you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage or email us at podcast at 11fs.com thanks very much for listening goodbye